everyone and welcome back to SALT Talks. I'm Rachel Pether. I'm a senior advisor to Skybridge Capital, a global alternative investments firm, as well as being the MC for SALT, a thought leadership forum and networking platform that encompasses business, finance and politics. SALT Talks is a series of digital interviews where we speak to some of the world's foremost investors, creators and thinkers. And just as we do at our Global SALT events, which unfortunately we haven't been able to do this year, we aim to empower really big, important ideas and provide our audience a window into the mind of subject matter experts. Today, I'm very excited to be welcoming Matt Salloway to SALT Talks. Matt's the CEO of GSI Ventures, which is a top 50 global family office that focuses on venture capital and business development for company expansion into the MENA region. He's also the co-founder and managing partner of SIP Global Partners, an international venture fund with offices in New York and Tokyo. Previously, Matt was the founder and managing partner of Salloway Law Group, an international law firm based in Manhattan. And he's also worked as a consultant with McKinsey and a research associate at Harvard Business School. And if that's not enough, Matt is also a successful film producer with some of his credits, including The Butler, starring Oprah Winfrey and Forrest Whitaker, The Eyes of March, starring George Clooney and Ryan Gosling, and The War with Grandpa, which actually opens in the US this week, starring Robert De Niro. Just a quick reminder, if you have any questions for Matt during today's session, just enter them in the Q&A box on your Zoom screen. And with that, Matt, welcome to SALT Talks. Thank you, Rachel. It's a pleasure to be here and uh, so thankful for the opportunity. No, we're, we're very happy that you're joining us today. And, you know, we have so many subjects that we could go into because you do wear a number of hats, but I'd really like to start with GSI Ventures, which is the family office that you run for a prominent Saudi. So maybe you could tell me a bit about your journey and what took you to the kingdom originally. Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, just as background, I, I grew up in, in Boston, so uh, spent most of my life there before moving to New York, uh, where I've been living for about 16 years. Uh, again, as you, as you mentioned, trained as an attorney, um, and then uh, now got into what I, what I am doing. And uh, GSI is really a, a single family office that's focused on managing the assets uh, and the affairs for this family. GSI stands for growth, sustainability, and integrity. Those are our core, our core pillars and values that we, that we live by. Uh, for me, getting into Saudi Arabia was sort of a, a very um, fortuitous uh, experience. I was an attorney before, as I mentioned, and uh, I started at a firm called O'Melveny & Myers, where I was working uh, mostly corporate law, doing private equity, mergers and acquisitions, venture capital, uh, in, in 2004, when I started, it was really one of the most active times in, in the private equity market with leverage buyouts. Uh, I was representing companies like Apollo and JP Morgan Partners, uh, and it was really great training ground. But for me, I really wanted to get into counseling, advising, guiding, really serving as uh, a personal advisor that could help clients meet their goals. And being at a large firm was great training for me, but it wasn't necessarily where I wanted to uh, spend the rest of my career. So I ended up launching my own law firm, uh, which I've uh, now transitioned into doing uh, the family office, but the law firm was really focused on helping high net worths, international families, companies meet their goals. 
and I actually had a, um, a great uncle who was, uh, was a very successful, prominent lawyer in a small town in, in the United States. And I used to hear stories about how he really added so much value to the lives of his clients. And I wanted to, to replicate that. That was sort of the same type of thing that I wanted to do. And obviously New York City is a much, much larger, bigger place than a small town. Um, but I wanted to provide that same type of guidance and counsel. And I was fortunate to start working with, uh, with clients in, in that world uh, and started representing a lot of international families and one of which I'm still with today, a wonderful family, very humble, uh, very sophisticated, uh, but just shares the same values. And I was just excited to get that opportunity to start working together. So let's take that acronym that you just mentioned, GSI, the growth, the sustainability and the integrity. What does that actually mean in practice? So what types of investments are you looking at? And maybe you can also talk about the growth aspect, particularly in Saudi Arabia. Sure. So we started the family office in 2016. So we've been evolving as, uh, as has the world been. And especially in Saudi, you see a lot of the changes that are occurring. But primarily, the, the goal of the family office is to manage the affairs uh, of, of, the, uh, of the family, to, uh, to have the right portfolio allocation, uh, focused on capital growth, obviously capital preservation, and having the right diversification strategy. Because as, as you may know, a lot of families in the Middle East and even internationally sometimes do get very concentrated in one part of the world or one asset class. And being fortunate to be based in the United States, a lot of our focus and my focus is helping to find the right opportunities globally and, and especially in, in the States and Europe where we can really diversify the portfolio. So uh, growth sustainability are the core pillars of the family office. Uh, so growth obviously is, uh, is, is, is a very clear path and most family offices share that same vision. They want to make sure that the capital is going in the right direction. Uh, a lot of families get bogged down in spending patterns and, uh, and also again concentration in, in areas that may be uh, too illiquid or uh, not provide the right balance. As, as we see in the economy, things change. It can change very quickly and you need to make sure you have the right uh, balance in place. Sustainability and integrity are also very core pillars. Um, integrity, I'll start with first, that's just a foundational aspect of how we do business, the people we want to work with, uh, really sort of uh, the way we want to um, have that reputation of being uh, the right partners and the right investors. Sustainability is, a, is important as a long-term goal. Uh, we've, we've done some, although we're mostly focused on, you know, our portfolio and our uh, growing sort of that, uh, th those buckets were also focused on impact investing. And we participated in a, uh, a couple years ago, a class at Harvard that brought together some of the uh, largest international families in the world uh, with two professors there. And we wanted to be somewhat of a catalyst for that uh, philosophy in the region, telling people that it is important to consider ways that you can use your resources to do good for the world and make a difference. It's not all about the bottom line. Um, although that is very important, it's nice to have some buckets where you can have impact on uh, your society and, and the, uh, the global marketplace as we try to do at GSI. I'd love to come back to that point on impact later and also sort of weave that into the work that you're doing on the film side. But you mentioned the concentrated portfolios. And one thing I've noticed in the Middle East is there is a 
there was a huge home bias here, right? So a lot of people are investing in the region. And I know that part of your mandate is also to bring companies to the Middle East. So how do you balance that between sort of the diversified portfolio, but also not having so much of a, a home bias? How do you manage those two pieces? Yeah, it's a great question. I think the way that we look at our investing is somewhat of a strategic. So when we invest into technology and specifically in the United States, we look for ways that we can take that technology as a strategic partner and grow it into, into the region. So there's somewhat of a, you know, it's, it, it's, it's in a way, uh, a great way to um, improve our investment chances because we have great infrastructure in the region and to be able to take an investment that we think is best in class and then introduce it into a country like Saudi Arabia, which is you know, a difficult market to, to penetrate unless you have on the ground uh, resources um, and, and be able to bring the best in class technology into the country, which is very much in line with what they're trying to do in you know, Vision 2030, which I know we'll, we'll probably talk about a little later. But uh, you know, we wanna be able to invest in companies that can change the world. And that's been a big focus of uh, GSI, it's been a big focus of SIP, of investing in, in the next uh, generation of world-class transformation, transformational technology. And that technology is not only a good investment, but it also can improve the uh, economy of the countries that we're uh, trying to grow in. It can add, um, add jobs, it can improve the quality of life, it can make a real difference in, in, the, in the region. And that's how we see ourselves as somewhat of a strategic partner where we're not necessarily overlooking the home country where we wanna have a lot of influence and uh, connectivity, but it also is a way that we can diversify our investing and get access to best-in-class technology because there's also an interest in growing those companies globally. You, you mentioned SIP, which is one of the other hats that you wear, SIP Global Partners, and that's tied to the Japanese institutions. What do you see happening with Japan with regards to technology? And are you bringing some of those into Saudi Arabia as well? Sure, so uh, SIP was, was founded about a year ago to specifically address what we saw was the opportunity in Japan. Now, historically, Japan has uh, been a leader in innovation and technology. In the 1970s, 1980s, I remember as a kid having the, the Panasonic television, the Sony Walkmans, these very sleekly designed and the hardware was really uh, innovative. That has changed over time in Japan and you really haven't seen a significant amount of innovation coming out of Japan in the last 20 to 25 years. So, you know, why, why is that? I mean, it's hard to understand because Japan is the third largest economy. Uh, Japan has a very sophisticated workforce. Uh, Japan has the, you know, just as much intellectual property as other countries. Um, it's a stable democracy. Uh, so, you know, why are they not innovating at the same extent? <clears throat> Excuse me. And the reason, at least in, in, in what I've heard and what I've seen spending a lot of time there is that, uh, you know, first of all, there's a culture that's somewhat risk averse. And, you know, it's, it's, it's better to not fail than to succeed in a sense. I mean, that's somewhat of a underpinning philosophy. I, I personally, as an American, uh, have lived by the, you know, Teddy Roosevelt, who 
used to say, far better is it to dare mighty things, even though checkered by failure, than to dwell in the perpetual twilight that knows not victory or defeat. That's how a lot of Americans live. We'll take risks, and, and a lot of other countries too, but Japan is a little bit more uh, risk averse. So all that being said, that is starting to change and evolve in a positive way. So uh, I'll give you just a couple of statistics. Uh, there's, a, there's a university called uh, Keio University in Japan, which was the university that gave uh, the country the most entrepreneurs. So if you were to go into uh, a startup, you normally would graduate from Keio, not the University of Tokyo. So I think, you know, 10, 15 years ago, 30% of the entrepreneurs were coming out of Keio and maybe 2% were coming out of uh, University of Tokyo in, in, that, in that realm. That has actually switched in recent years. So now University of Tokyo is producing a lot more entrepreneurs that are going into startup companies. So as that's starting to shift, and as you're starting to see more money being put into venture capital domestically in Japan, uh, there is starting to be a more of a focus on innovation and technology. Part of that is focused on uh, the, the essential need for them to innovate because of the aging problem. Japan is, uh, has, I think, this, if the median age is 48 years old. It's the second oldest uh, demographic in the world. Uh, as the country continues to age, there's, there is going to be uh, an impact on the economy. So there is a real need for the country to start innovation. And that's where we, we believe there's an opportunity for us to come in uh, as SIP, we are an independent venture capital cross-border technology company. Japan has mostly corporate venture capital investors. 50% of the money that's going into Japanese technology is coming from CVCs, corporate venture capitals in Japan. So as an independent venture fund, which we are, we believe that there's a strong opportunity to bring best-in-class technology, which the country's hungry for, which the country needs from other places like where we're based in the United States uh, into the country where we have a very strong uh, infrastructure and connectivity. So that's a bit long-winded, but a bit about our thesis into Japan, where the opportunity is, how things are now starting to evolve. Uh, and we're very excited about what we're doing there and the future of Japan's growth and innovation. Yeah, that's really interesting points that you made on the, the demographic side as well, because I guess when you look to the, the decades when they were strong, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the, the median age was much lower then. So I wonder if that sort of plays into the cultural aspect as well. But it sounds like from what you're saying, you are now seeing a, a new wave of entrepreneurs that aren't so scared about, about failing. Yeah, it's, it's changing slowly. And I, I, would, I would caution even though these are, again, my opinions, but as COVID has come in unexpectedly, it may slow a bit, but we are seeing, you know, people leaving and going into startups because in Japan, it was, it was very accepted to just go to a large corporate and spend your entire career there. It was very stable, it's prestigious, it's safe. Uh, so you go and you work for a conglomerate and you spend your career there. But now, it's becoming more accepted, and you know you're seeing a lot of uh, a lot of changes that are happening slowly, but it's it's occurring. Yeah, they were the um, the sort of ultimate salary man, wasn't it? Your yes. job for life kind of kind of aspect. Uh, I also want to 
you know, talked about Saudi and Japan and maybe go a bit deeper into geopolitics. We actually had, I don't know if you saw the Salt Talk, we had Dr. Kai uh, Fee Lee on a previous mm. Salt Talk and he was talking about artificial intelligence and, you know, how uh, China and the US were the clear front runners in terms of an aggregate score, which is research plus implementation plus monetization. How do you see the tensions, you know, you're on the ground in the US, how do you see the tensions between America and China as it relates to AI? And I guess that's part of a broader question about how geopolitics sort of intersects with venture capital. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question and we see it every day playing out with, with news, uh, news flashes. And uh, I guess, let me take the geopolitical question the way that the way that we see it is really there's a bifurcation in the world in terms of how countries are uh, making alliances, and they're they're not necessarily strict formal alliances; they're more loose. But if you want to look at it, and I'm giving generalizations here, look at it from a broad perspective. You've got uh, China, Russia, Iran, Pakistan, all sort of on one side of the world, and then you've got, and again, broad generalizations, you've got uh, the United States, Japan, Saudi Arabia, Europe, Israel, you've got sort of this um, sort of loose affiliation. And that and that sort of relates to, you know, inward and outward investment flows, uh, intellectual property, transfers and exchanges, uh, knowledge chance transfers, it really relates to a lot of, uh, you know, various aspects of business and collaboration. So I think, Number one, with China, you know, and seeing what's happened with Firma uh, and, and the changes, I mean, we've seen statistically tremendous change from the United States investing in China. I think, again, I'm trying to recall numbers, but I think it was 20 billion was invested a number of years ago uh, into China. Now it was like 5 billion most recently. And same with Chinese investment into the United States has really uh, has had to decrease. So. Uh, so there's now opportunities for other people and other players to step up. Number one, we see Japan as a very interesting uh, country that could fill some of that gap. And again, that's why we're very bullish and very involved in Japan. So Japan can now start investing more into the United States. Uh, there's also the opportunity for the U.S. to invest into Japan. Again, very large, third largest economy, very stable country in terms of uh, government, democracy. Uh, very sort of sophisticated workforce. The other thing I would mention is Israel. And, you know, with, with the Abraham Accords, which was a recent uh, uh, piece of, uh, of, of uh, agreement between uh, the United, sorry, between uh, Israel and uh, the United Arab Emirates, where you are, Rachel, uh, as well as Bahrain, uh, I think it's a tremendous opportunity for uh, growth in the Middle East. You know, Israel just taking a step back is is a is really the size of New Jersey. So it's a small small country. It has nine million people. Uh, it's seventy two years old. It's a, it's a relatively young country, but statistically per capita, it is uh, has the most venture capital technology uh, and startups in the world. And we've seen you know some tremendous technologies come out of Israel. You've seen uh, ways. Uh, the you know the navigation technology. There's a, a Mobileye, the um, uh, recent uh, huge acquisition that happened uh, for auto autonomous driving. 
There's a company called PillCam, which is a medical technology, which, you know, you, you, you take the pill and, and it, it, it can video your, uh, you know, diagnostics for healthcare. Um, Exo, there's an exoskeleton company, which can help uh, people without limbs walk. Uh, there's, uh, you know, it just historically speaking, as a side note, uh, instant messaging came out of Israel, the, uh, the zip drive, uh, the SanDisk uh, uh, zip drives came out of Israel, uh, operating systems, so from Microsoft. So it, it's a really tremendous place. And I think having now this collaboration together between, uh, between countries will be uh, significant uh, for the future of development of the venture capital ecosystem. And so when you're looking at some of these cross-border transactions, particularly bringing some of the verticals into Saudi Arabia, what are some of the top three verticals that you're looking at in terms of yeah. inward into Saudi? So I guess, let me, I don't know, again, in terms of the, the, uh, the viewers, uh, if they know a lot about Saudi Arabia. And I didn't, I didn't speak about it. And I'd love to give a little context and to answer that question. So Saudi Arabia, uh, as historically, uh, you know, there's, to give people a little background on, on Vision 2030, which was created a number of years ago, which was focused on finding ways to uh, diversify the kingdom away from uh, oil assets to make sure the economy could sustain. So Vision 2030 had all these reforms and uh, goals, some very aspirational, but uh, tr tremendous uh, 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 you know, plan for the country and the future. As part of that, we're seeing a lot of the impact of those uh, of those plans and goals and government support. So uh, I want to talk, I think, about two areas that I see as being the most areas of which answers this question in terms of verticals uh, of growth in Saudi Arabia. I think the first is technology venture capital, and the second is entertainment and tourism. I, I'm, I'm generalizing and, and you know, grouping these together. But if you, look at, uh, if you look at venture capital and technology, so Saudi Arabia uh, was never, in recent years, was not a startup hub, but it's starting to become a startup hub. Uh, in recent years, it's become the number three uh, uh, most active uh, economy in MENA. In, in terms of, uh, of venture capital investing in technology behind the Emirates and Egypt. Uh, so it's starting to see a little bit more uh, growth trajectory in that area. And that's interesting because Saudi Arabia is, is the largest economy in the Middle East. And it has, I think 70% of the population is under the age of 30 or, or 35. So very young demographic people that are very technologically advanced. Uh, and with the government uh, really supporting technology and entrepreneurs, PIF created the large, one of the largest fund of funds, JADA, where it's putting close to a billion dollars or over a billion dollars, I think, into local regional startups. The Saudi venture capital company, SVC, was created uh, with $750 million to invest into the region. So there's a lot of government assistance that's being helped and pushed uh, to encourage startups and technology. And we're seeing the results. So I think in 2020, uh, there was 95 million invested in uh, Saudi startups, which, you know, with COVID and uh, 
some of the you know just world events it, that's incredible that's the largest ever uh, a tremendous increase i think in 2015 it was 7 million so you see a, a really big shift uh, in terms of the industries in technology and venture capital that we're seeing i'd say there's a few the first is e-commerce that's been a, a very active area a company called jahaz which is a grocery delivery company. They recently had one of their um, largest rounds uh, this year. I think it was around $36 million uh, or they've raised $36 million uh, uh, for the company. Another company and, and area that we're seeing uh, growth in Saudi is education technology. Uh, there's, a, there's a company called Noon which is uh, Noon Academy, which raised $13 million recently, which is an online educational company. There's a lot with financial technology, e-payments e and uh, dig digital payments and e-wallets, those types of things that the country is focusing on. Cybersecurity is another area that the country is, uh, is focusing on. Uh, so those are some of the areas in technology and venture capital. We as a venture capital firm, uh, are also a beneficiary of some of the uh, government initiatives. The government set up through SAGIA, which is the Saudi Arabian General Investment Authority, a venture initiative where it's trying to attract the best global venture funds into Saudi Arabia. And we, we recently were uh, uh, granted uh, the, as part of that program to, to get a license and uh, be involved. So technology, venture capital, those areas are really growing significantly. The other area, very quickly, uh, is entertainment and tourism. So I'm sure, you know, I, I, I don't know if most of the viewers have been to Saudi, but historically, it was very hard. You had to get the right visa. Even myself, I had to have a special visa. They created a system where 49 countries around the world can now visit Saudi Arabia uh, as a tourist uh, for 90 days. And you can get this very easily and quickly online. So there's a real uh, focus on bringing people into, into the country. On the other side, there's a focus on keeping people in the country. And Saudi Arabians, uh, having worked with, with families there for the last 10 years, you know, the, the people travel. A lot of the country has, you know, spends time in Europe and the United States and Dubai. So they spend a lot of money elsewhere. The government has focused on trying to keep the people in Saudi longer, you know, during the year and spend more money, uh, you know, spend more of their uh, earnings in, in the actual country. So there's been a huge focus on uh, tourism and entertainment. As examples, uh, the country opened movie theaters, uh, 35 year moratorium was on movie theaters in the country. Now there's movie theaters. There's now live music. When I was there, there were uh, live music concerts. Uh, the WWE signed a 10 year deal with the government. So they're, they're bringing in uh, very well-known players. For, uh, Formula One is, uh, was there recently. Um, you know, they're, they're building a live music hall. So it, there's a tremendous amount of progress, I'd say, in, in that space. Uh, one last point, uh, Seasons, which is the sort of large malls and shopping areas that have been created all across the country are, are a result of the government and getting people, and I've been to, to the Seasons a few times, bringing the best restaurants, the best stores into the country. It's subsidized significantly by the government, but you walk around and uh, people are very happy. They're, they're able to get some of the, you know, the food and, and products that they used to get in Europe, in the United States, they can now get in Saudi. So it's a really exciting time and there's a lot of change and, uh, and, and, and progress. 
No, I completely agree. You know, I've only been going there for a couple of years, but on every successive trip, you notice at least, you know, 4,000 things that have changed from the last time. Uh, conveniently, you talk about opening movie theatres, which is a very nice segue to another piece that I want to talk to you about. We've had a lot of audience questions come in as well, so I'll, I'll go to those in a minute. But I want to pivot from the use of technology to do good to looking at film and how that can positively affect society. Uh, I did mention, but I'm going to mention again, that you have some pretty impressive movie credits uh, on The Butler, The Ides of March, and The War with Grandpa. So what led to your interest in film? Because this seems to me quite, you know, separate from, from the family office side of things. So I'd love to know more about, about what brought that into your life. Sure. So for me, film has always been a tremendous vehicle and medium to inspire people, to educate them, uh, to change the world in a sense, uh, in some small ways. So I've always been very passionate about film. In some ways, it's like venture capital from an investment perspective and looking at investment structures and being a lawyer. Uh, when I started my firm, I was doing a lot uh, in film in terms of distribution, film finance, uh, representing people in the business. But it's it's a really incredible uh, area to influence society. And as an example, the Butler, um, which uh, which we made with uh, uh, Forrest Whitaker and Oprah Winfrey, was a true story about a Butler who served for seven presidents uh, in the United States. And the the story is is really a journey through the civil rights movement, culminating with Barack Obama becoming president. And my mother, you know, a lot of what I do has also been influenced by my family. And my mother was quite involved in the civil rights movement in the United States. Um, my parents are also very involved in philanthropy. My grandmother started a nonprofit in the 1950s with some, some other women in, in Boston, helping mentally ill, uh, homeless people, battered women. My parents actually now run that same organization in their retirement, all volunteer. So I was raised with some of those values of wanting to have impact and make a difference. And that's part of what drives me. It, it, it drives me obviously in, in the family office, it drives me uh, in the venture fund, and it drives me uh, across the board in, in film. All of these are ways that we can make a difference, uh, obviously still being successful as a business person and meeting our business goals, but having positive impact on the people, on the world, on the society that, that, that we're um, interacting with. So that's the way for me, film has been uh, really an amazing uh, uh, vehicle for that. We, we have a bunch of uh, other projects that are coming out. Uh, in addition, War with Grandpa, as you said, is starting on Friday. It's coming out across the United States. It's a heartwarming family comedy with Robert De Niro, Uma Thurman, Rob Riggle, Christopher Walken, Jane Seymour. It's directed by uh, the SpongeBob uh, uh, creator. Uh, so it's a really, really wonderful story that's based on a children's book about a grandfather that moves back in with his, uh, uh, his daughter and her family and he takes his grandson's room and they start, they start a bit of a war against each other. And we're you know, excited for that to be released. We're also working on a film that's called uh, Worth, which is the story of Ken Feinberg, who was the 9-11 special master uh, and really had to determine the value of human life. He was entrusted by President Bush and, and Congress in awarding uh, monies to 9-11 uh, 
victims' families, and, and he had to go through the process of interacting with families to figure out what what was the value of that human life that was lost, which was a, uh, a tremendous, uh, tremendous story, uh, which we hope to release next year on the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Um, and then we're working on a couple other uh, projects. One is the story of the first female White House journalist, Connie Lawn, as well as uh, a sequel to Dances with Wolves that uh, we're, we're excited about. So again, very broad and diverse, but a nice, uh, a nice balance of opportunities that really make a difference, hopefully, uh, in the world. That's fabulous. And I think the war with grandpa, probably many people have experienced that during COVID, haven't they? I know, <laughs> I would say 50% of the people I know have moved back in with their parents or mm. somehow the family's been consolidated again. So I'm so sure that will resonate with a lot of people. Uh, we have had so many questions coming in from the audience. So I am going to address them now. Broadly, they sort of fall into film and venture capital. So I'll start with some of the venture capital focus questions. In your opinion, what makes a unicorn, given that you see these, these deals all over the world? Yeah, it's a great question. And obviously, the, uh, it's, it's the holy grail for what venture capitalists look for. I think I read a statistic that unicorns, your, your, your chances of becoming a unicorn are uh, out of 5 million startup investments, three become unicorns. So it's very, very competitive. Um, and obviously that's what we aspire to. I think there's a couple, there's probably two points I'd make. The first is I've always believed in timing being a huge part of, of life, of business. Uh, and I don't know if, if a lot of the viewers know Wayne Gretzky, but he was really one of the most famous professional hockey players, professional athletes. And he used to say that I skate to where the puck is going, not to where the puck has been. And I think that's, a huge part of becoming a successful startup is knowing where technology is going and being able to uh, follow your instincts and, and follow the, the data to make that decision. I think the second uh, part of that is, and I've created a silly acronym for the way I think about unicorns. It's, it's, a, it's an investment that I don't want to miss, M-I-S-S. And, and that stands for, for really four things. One, management. So who are, the manage, who are the people that are going to be driving this opportunity? For me, I've invested as a fund and, and as a family office in people that, that we have uh, long-standing relationships with. One of our uh, uh, portfolio companies is someone I've known for 20 years, and he's uh, one of the most successful venture capitalists in, uh, in the United States. But he knows how to start a company. He knows how to also bring it to fruition. It's not just about having the great idea. It's being able to uh, execute. So it's the management team. I stands for integrity. We talked about this earlier, but it's all about your reputation. It's all about uh, trusting the people you're investing in. There's so much that you are putting into as, as investors in private equity, hedge funds, uh, venture capital, your, your trust, you're entrusting your resources in, to other people. And we've seen a lot of people get burned. We've seen there are a lot of unethical and unscrupulous people. So you really have to do the best you can to trust uh, who you're working with. And, you know, it's, it's, it's about that, uh, that uh, belief in, in who you're uh, partnering with. S and S, the last two, uh, S is sales. So having the right sales strategy, you can have a phenomenal idea but it doesn't mean that you're gonna be able to, to sell it. 
Uh, and there's a lot of reasons how you sell, but you have to be passionate in the way you sell. You have to have the right people, the right connections, the right strategy. Uh, and then the last thing is size. And I think, you know, you can have a great idea that you can sell, but it has to be sold to the right size, you know, a sizable market in order for it to be a, a unicorn and to be profitable. So you have to have those, I think those factors, those are the four factors that, uh, that I look for when I'm, when I'm thinking about a unicorn. Excellent. Thank you. I think that's the lawyer and you creating acronyms for everything, but yeah. it's good that you've got it in a structure. Um, uh, we've got a question from Ken and I'm going to read, read out his name because he's such a great Salt Talk supporter. So thank you for your question, uh, Ken Lustig. Uh, Matt, what are some of the ways that you help your portfolio companies develop opportunities for their products or technologies in Saudi Arabia? Can you give some tangible examples on that? Sure. I, I think it, it, it ranges from, uh, from a variety of uh, alliances and partnerships. The first is, is the most basic, which is saying, uh, look, you want to you grow into, into Saudi, let us, let us give you some advice. Let us uh, introduce you to the right people, the, you know, the people that we think are knowledgeable in this space. Let us be a resource for you. Um, then you know, it, it can get a little bit more, uh, more active where you know, we'll help set up an office uh, and create a somewhat of a joint venture or partnership where uh, we will help create the operations to, uh, you know, to manage this business. Uh, and again, it depends on the sectors. It depends, uh, this is a broad answer, but our goal is to really uh, open up access to a marketplace that is quite uh, significant and also uh, very difficult to get into. They're now changing and attracting a lot of foreign investment and, and people to, it's becoming easier to do business in Saudi, but you still really need uh, on the ground assistance. And we see the same thing, obviously in Japan. Uh, we see Japan uh, as a springboard also to the rest of Asia. So if a company can grow into Saudi, if it can grow into Japan, it can then also start growing into the rest of the region, uh, which is also significant. And the same, you know, same is, is the case for, uh, for the Middle East. There's a lot of um, opportunities throughout MENA for, uh, for growth, depending on your, your technology company and, and product. And you did touch on before the Abraham Accord and you know, the relationships there between UAE and Bahrain. Do you think there's opportunities to look forward to there within Saudi as well with some easing of uh, diplomatic tensions? And how do you see that sort of Saudi-Israel partnership evolving? Sure. I mean, it's look. This is only my uh, my personal perspective. I have no inside information, but uh, it sounds from 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 what I've read and what I've seen that there's uh, a real growth in collaboration, and it sounds like you know, hopefully, optimistically, you know, for me, the more countries that can be allied and doing business together, the better it is for the entire world uh, for us to grow the right kinds of technology, but. From what I've heard, and I think uh, there was an interview with uh, one of the members of the royal family recently talking about um, Israel and the technology. I read, I read in uh, online on, on one of the, uh, uh, it was Bloomberg or, or one of the other uh, news outlets. So I think that there's continuing to be a, a greater dialogue. Uh, also, you know, with Iran and, uh, you know, some of the controversies and the complexity of the region, I think, uh, 
there's more reasons for, for countries to be uh, closer in partnership and working together. So I'm optimistic. I think it looks like there are other countries that, that are also in the region that might, you know, Oman, that may follow as well. So it's a, it's a really interesting story to watch. Excellent. Thanks so, so much for that. And we've got a quick question on Japan as well. The way you're, when you're looking at the Japanese venture capital system, are you seeing it concentrated in certain areas, um, you know, maybe such as automation? And, and if yes, could you give some specific examples of what you're seeing there? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really interesting question. Um, I think there are a couple areas of, of where there's uh, where there is a strong area of growth. Um, cybersecurity is one area where I think uh, where we've, we've actually had my partners in Japan have, have, have brought companies, uh, great technologies into the region. Um, cybersecurity was also very important for the Olympics, you know, which, which didn't happen, but the government was very focused on finding and, and creating best in class technology practices uh, in the country. So cyber is one area. Um, I would say I would say aging digital for the aging problem. There's there's a digital healthcare component. So uh, because you don't have enough people to to care for the the aging population demographic, there's a lot of advances that are happening in uh, digital health, which relates to you know AI uh, being able to create. I, I know that I I read about some products that were helping care for the elderly, which you know, there may be some automation in there um, that are being developed. So I think the country is, uh, is still very strong in robotics. It's still very strong in, in automation, uh, in infrastructure, the bullet train, obviously one of the most advanced uh, technologies, uh, which has been around for a while. Um, but I think they're starting now to, to broaden and to get, to have interest in best-in-class technologies globally that are outside of their traditional scope. And that's where, you know, again, where we've come in as SIP. Uh, my two partners in Japan are, uh, one of them has been in Japan for, for many, many years. He was the CEO of a, a, a startup that became public. Uh, he was the first foreign hire in Netscape. Uh, his father was actually the first venture capitalist in Japan. He brought the LP system into Japan in the 70s and co-founded uh, JAFCO which is a very storied uh, uh, institution. So we have a lot of expertise on the ground there from a venture capital startup perspective. And we're also anchored by one of the largest uh, corporates in Japan uh, that wanted access to technology. So with all of sort of our expertise there, we believe we're very poised to bring uh, a lot of diversity and uh, interest into this massive market. Can you give me some examples of some of the portfolio companies that SIP has invested in to date? Sure. So we we have uh, four companies, three that we uh, have officially announced and one we're announcing later this month. But what we, we've tried to focus on early growth stage series A, series B companies that are globally uh, focused. And we believe that we get access to a lot of these companies not only because I talked about integrity and, and, and our reputation and our capital, but because a lot of the founders want access to these massive markets. So we're getting best in class access to deal flow, uh, to best in class technology. Uh, so the companies that we've invested in, one is a company called Croquet, 
which is a web uh, infrastructure, it's an operating system, co-founded actually by uh, Alan Kay, who was the father of the personal computer. He was uh, Steve Jobs' mentor. It's now being run by, uh, by David Smith, the former CIO of Lockheed Martin, uh, company's fascinating. Uh, we were we have a board seat. We're we're the uh, one of the first investors uh, in this company now uh, in this in this uh, version of the company. Um, we also have an investment in a company called Parallel Wireless, which is a 5G technology, co-founded by uh, Steve Papa, who is a multi-unicorn founder. Uh, I actually met him when I was that year I spent at Harvard Business School. Uh, got to know Steve and, and have kept a relationship. He uh, founded uh, Endeka, which he sold to Oracle for over a billion dollars. He's one of the founders of Toast, another unicorn, really fantastic venture capital investor and, uh, and also operator. Uh, we also are uh, an investor in a company called Fable, which is a uh, animation uh, design tool, which we're very excited about. And uh, the fourth company, which uh, we'll release more later this month is a uh, is an AR technology uh, that was was 300 times oversubscribed. It was a very competitive um, investment. We led that round, and it's really by one of uh, co-founded by one of the top gaming technologists in uh, in the world. Incredible. And on the the SIP, and also I guess GSI as well. We've had a few questions coming in. I'm going to group them together sorry everybody but we've had a few questions coming in on the co-investment and syndication and lp front how do you normally structure your deals and how do you go go about finding uh other lps and co-investment club deal partners etc well we you know we we look for we have we've been blessed to really create a large very strong network of family offices uh, and, and investors, some strategic, some that are people who are, uh, you know, operators or have access to uh, to strategic uh, partnerships, which which are quite attractive. But we've we've been blessed, you know, having built, uh, I think, a strong reputation. As as Warren Buffett likes to say, I think it it takes 20 years to build a reputation and uh, 20 seconds to to ruin it. Which, you know, we've number one not only because it's the right thing to do. Uh, which is really what drives us being good partners, having integrity, uh, being reliable. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's why we've had such a great, strong uh, network and co-investment partners. Uh, but it's, you know, it's also about your reputation. And, and once you lose that, uh, that's all you really have. Yeah, you've said a number of really great quotes during this discussion, but that one from Buffett was definitely a good one. We've, we are over time, but I really like this question. So I'm going to uh, take an executive decision and ask it to you anyway. Are you ever going to make a science fiction movie and combine your knowledge of film production and technology? And if so, which science fiction movie would you want to remake? Wow, that's a fantastic question. Um, I, I, so I, the answer is hopefully one day, I think some of the technologies that we're seeing uh, could be quite relevant in in um, in, in the uh, cinematic uh, world. I would say that there's actually a film that we're that we're currently developing, which is a strong AI technology-based uh, film, which is just completely fortuitous. But we're actually developing this film uh, currently with 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 two partners and. 
uh, it's a fascinating story and it, and it does leverage cutting edge technology. So I think that this will be a, an area where I will marry sort of my, my uh, knowledge and connectivity in the cutting edge technology to uh, the filmmaking world. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Matt. It's been a pleasure speaking to you today. I knew it would be just as much fun as ever. So thanks so much for your time and, and sharing your insights with us. Thank you, Rachel. It's been an honor to be with you and I'm so thankful for the opportunity. Thank <laughs> you.